Ephesians chapter 5. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hand. We'll pick it up with verse 22. Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 22. And I'll just be reading verses 22 through 26. Uh, all the way through 33 deals with marriage, but again, we're going to spend three weeks on this, so we'll kind of break it down little by little as we go. But starting with verse 22, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I hate having to start with this verse, but uh, <laughs> we'll get to that. The misapplication and all the good stuff that comes with it, but... Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Lord, we just thank you again for your word. Lord, wash and cleanse us by your word. Lord, reveal it to us as you want us individually and collectively to understand it, know it, and apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, after a lengthy and escalating argument, y'all ever had one of these? Dave said to his wife, Amanda, you know, I was a total fool when I married you. Amanda replied quickly, yes, Dave, you certainly were, but I was in love and I never noticed it. <laughs> a son asked his dad a question about marriage in ancient times. So asking his dad about how marriages worked in ancient times and saying, Dad, is it true that in ancient China, a man didn't know his wife until they were married? The dad responded, that's still true today, son, in every country on planet Earth. <laughs> Marriage, given some time, fills in a lot of new information, doesn't it, about husbands and wives that they didn't see prior. Everything was perfect. Well, you were the, you have no flaws, none, until they say, I do. And then marriage also eventually reveals plenty of flaws, not flaws in marriage itself, no, but flaws in us. These facts only serve to underscore why the help and presence of God is so essential in marriage. But that's only part of God's involvement in marriage and his will for marriage. Jesus, speaking on marriage, said, from the beginning. You see, ever since God created Adam and Eve, marriage has been central to God's plan for humanity. Central, not some outlier, central. The fact is, it was central in God's plan even before he created the first couple, because God knows things in eternity past, right? Marriage is the design of God, its inception, its construct, its intent, its benefits all come directly from God, just like the cosmos or a beautiful flower. The intricate details of the human brain. Marriage is perfectly designed by God, and even more than that, it's blessed by God. God loves the institution of marriage because he ordained it and he designed it, and we can be assured of his help and strength in marriage 
if we follow his help and his instructions. Amen? We've got to follow his help. Now, for the next few weeks, we will look at marriage and how God desires to bless and use it in our lives. Yet, for some of you, you might say, well, I'm not currently married. I'm single. I'm a widow or a widower. Or I'm divorced, and I'm not sure if I'll ever remarry. How does this series really relate to me in my life? Well, aside from the fact that the marriages around us and in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, the fact that, the fact that they impact us, whether for good or bad, that's important. But keep in mind that anything as biblically central as marriage needs to be understood and appreciated by anyone who's put their faith in Christ. It needs to be understood by us, doesn't it? After Adam and Eve, we see the marriage relationship of Abraham and Sarah, who are listed as spiritual parents. Did you know that there are spiritual parents? Abraham and Sarah. We, they're not your parents or mine, but they're spiritual parents. And we find this in the New Testament. Israel as a nation was betrothed as a wife to God. Israel was God's betrothed wife. The marriage of Boaz and Ruth, well, that continued the messianic bloodline that brought King David into the world and ultimately Jesus. Of course, the marriages of Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're in the, at the onset of Christ's coming. Joseph and Mary, they play pivotal roles in the birth of Christ and God's revealing his earthly ministry. But lastly, and Paul addresses this here in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere, that the church is in a marriage relationship with Christ. So whether you're single or married, <clears throat> we are all in a marriage relationship with Jesus Christ, just as we prayed a few minutes ago. And whether we are single or married, we will benefit personally and as society from marriages that are as God intended. Wouldn't you agree with that? That we all benefit when marriages are healthy, holy, and godly. And this will be our focus the next three weeks, to see marriage relationships strengthened and built up and see all of us grow in our relationship with Christ as his collective bride, because we're all part of that relationship. I've titled this three-week series, More Than Married, A Portrait in Marriage. You see, God doesn't want people, especially his sons and daughters. If you're born again, you're a son and daughter. He doesn't want us just married. Or as some might say, stuck in a marriage. Barely surviving a marriage. But ultimately, he wants to see our marriages flourish and thrive. Likewise, he wants to see our relationship with his son uh, thoroughly thrive and uh, flourish as we look forward to his return and the marriage supper of the Lamb. God desires us to have spirit-filled marriages. Not just marriages, spirit-filled marriages. And he wants to have his church be a spirit-filled bride. Would you agree with that? Not just what Jesus, Jesus, I, I just want you guys to be married to me. We can kind of, kind of have a relationship where we kind of connect once about every 10 weeks. No, a spirit-filled bride. Both a spirit-filled marriage and a spirit-filled church, that's the bride of Christ, will shine like a bright light in the world around us, even more so as we see the days that we live in. Now, briefly, what is the state of marriage today? What's, what's going on in our country? How, how does marriage look 
right now and the United States in 2017. In a nutshell, there's a lot of room for improvement. That would be an understatement, right? There's a whole lot of room for improvement. Here in the U.S., uh, not only do we have people trying to redefine marriage and reject marriage and all the other things that come with that, but here in the U.S., divorce is far too common. And by the way, a lot of the statistics about divorce are way out of bounds. 50% of marriages do not end in divorce. That's not really the case. But regardless, divorce is far, far too common. But it's been a growing problem since the early 70s, ever since the uh, dawn of no-fault divorce, divorce has continued to climb uh, over the several decades since. Um, the bond of commitment, even the word commitment, is weaker today in so many realms than it's ever been before, especially in marriage, but also in other, just the walk with Christ, other things. We have some marital trends today that are unprecedented in our nation's history. Some of the trends right now have never seen, been seen before uh, that we're seeing right now. One example is a term that's emerged in the last 20 to 30 years. It's called the graying of divorce. Have you heard this term? The graying of divorce. This is divorce among those that are uh, over the age of 50, and that's more than doubled in the last 27 years. Prior to 1990, uh, according to a study uh, by the National Center for Marriage and Family, or Family and Marriage at Bowling Green uh, University, divorce among couples over the age of 50, prior to 1990, it was one out of every 10 couples over the age of 50. Today, that number is one out of every four couples over the age of 50. Instead of the two becoming one, many are drifting further and further and further and further apart over the years even when they don't realize they're drifting apart. Matter of fact, some will actually wake up and say, I never realized we had nothing in common anymore. I never realized we didn't really have much of a relationship. They're not even aware they're drifting apart. It's one thing to be drifting. It's another thing to be completely unaware that you're drifting. By the way, this happens in people's spiritual walk, too. But instead of Christ being at the center of many marriages, it's often the kids, career, or kids and career, but not really Jesus or the marriage itself. On the other end of the spectrum, we're dealing with younger people who are waiting longer to get married and increasingly not wanting to get married at all. This is a growing trend in our society. A 2015 article by Kathy Cava in the Huffington Post uh, cites seven reasons younger people are rejecting marriage. This is the seven reasons. I like to read from many different sources because you get what people are actually thinking about. Not what you want them to be thinking about, not what you think they should be thinking about, but what they are thinking about. And this is the seven reasons she cited. Number one, choice. There's no, longer a def uh, there's no longer a default pursuit of marriage. It's not culturally the norm anymore that, hey, when you get to be a certain age, you get married. You now have a choice. You don't want to get ever married. You want to pursue your uh, you know, other passions. Marriage is not that important. It's not some big deal. It's just the construct of man. You have a choice now. Number two, the pressure of losing one's identity. In an age today where everyone has their own, this is my Facebook account, this is my, this is my, this is my, Every, one's identity. Instead of having an identity in Christ, instead of having an identity as husband and wife, no, nope. personal identity, the, the pressure of losing that personal identity. Number three, marrying for the sake of marrying. Now, I kind of understand this one. This is uh, falls in kind of not settling. 
and many people you should not settle for. You know, they say, you know, I'm a dad with three girls. I'm going to tell them this often. No, no, no. We're not going to settle. You know, yeah. We're not going to settle. That dude is not ever going to provide. Because this is what my father-in-law said about me. So sometimes you kind of have to get over that. But, um, but we don't want to just get married for the sake of marrying. But at the other hand, if you're looking for the perfect person, you're going to look forever. Number four, too many gender roles. Boy, they would not like Ephesians chapter 5 as we just read some of these things. Uh, uh, that may be a lot of where that comes from, but also the misunderstanding of the gender roles. Number, uh, number six, having kids outside of wedlock is no longer taboo. Again, these are not my reasons. These were the reasons that were cited in the article. Having kids outside of wedlock, of course, that, that was a big deal years ago. Now, you know, it's, it's popularized on TV programs and all kinds of other things that, hey, it's actually just as good a choice, you know, all that stuff. And again, we're, we love single parents in this church. We have a great relate. We've, we've become a home to many of you, and people come to Christ at all different places in their life, and that's not the point. We're talking about the fact that they're saying that this doesn't matter, and it does matter. Number seven, the need for freedom. And again, this is why you have divorce as well. But hey, if you say, uh, you know, I could either get divorced or just not get married in the first place. So this need for freedom is another one. And I would add, um, I think this is a very, I think this is a very accurate list when you look at society today. I'd probably add that a number of younger people, and it, and it dovetails with number seven there. A number of young people today probably have seen enough divorce and are questioning, is marriage even worth it, right? So they look at that. I'd add that as number eight. They'd say, hey, well, you, many of my uncles and aunts and parents and grandparents, well, they've gotten divorced, so why even bother? So all of these things are impacting. Younger people are less and less likely now to get married at any point in U.S. history. Yet marriage is a gift from God. It's not a penalty against happiness or against contentment. I'm much happier married than I was single. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a good wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This does not mean you need to be married to be happy because God is the source of happiness, not marriage. I'm simply saying that God makes marriages happy. God makes single people happy. God makes widowed people happy, divorced people God's the source. But marriage is not the issue, right? Right? Cars are not the problem with drunk driving. Right? Cars are not the problem. If we get rid of cars, there'd be no more drunk driving. Right? Understand the issue. Uh, as of 2011, barely half 51% of U.S. adults were married as of 2011, 51%. Do you know what that number was in 1960? 72% of adults were married. And well, just this past year, you know, we've, we've seen uh, more. Um, I can't remember the data on this one. I didn't get a chance to research it. But uh, we're seeing more and more kids born out of wedlock. And this is, this is more and more kids are going to school and single-parent homes. And again, God has a plan for that. We want to come alongside as a church. We want to minister and be there for single parents if they're single for the rest of their life or God brings them back in a marriage relationship regardless. But the, the, the fact is, this has impact. 
It absolutely has impact. Coupled with other relationship-related issues, such as unwanted pregnancies, abuse, single moms being the sole providers, we have a combination of factors that are impacting millions of kids, not to mention the adults that are trying to put these broken pieces together and make it work, right? All of this is part of the fraying of marriage in our society and not understanding why God designed it and what the benefit is to all of us as, as a church, but as a nation. But God's design from the beginning is that being fruitful and multiply. Remember, that's what he told Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. That was always to come through marriage. That was always to come through the marriage relationship. This command and the spiritual implications are part of what Paul is addressing here as he outlines why marriage relationships are so critical to a healthy believer and a healthy church. Amen? Again, this is what God is saying. I actually think that because our society, because things are so out of kilter, a lot of pastors are afraid to even talk about marriage. Now, well, I don't want to offend people that are not married. I don't want to, I don't want to do this. Look, Jesus loves everyone in this room regardless of where you're at. But he's not going to change his word for what we have done. He's going to bring us back to the right place. Amen? Amen. Not going to say, well, you, you know, this isn't working. My word isn't working. Let's just cut pieces out and let's, let's just see if how it works. God's never, he changeth not, the scriptures say. But not because he's trying to impose misery, but because he's trying to bring us back to a place of joy and peace. Let's take a look at this. In the text, the first thing we want to look at um, is what I've titled the structure, the structure of marriage. Um, today will be a little bit more of a kind of a setting the table, so to speak, uh, putting things on the plate uh, that we'll then get a little bit more into over the next couple weeks. But we can't really get to some of the practical applications for marriage and uh, our personal walk with Jesus until we understand the structure. So we have to have that understanding. And we'll talk about some practical things today, but even more so uh, in the next couple of weeks because God wants practical means things that we can practice in our lives. Now, the first aspect of the structure of marriage, we see uh, right here in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. Now, we see two names here given individuals. One is a wife and one is a husband. The first aspect of the structure of marriage that involves a wife and involves a husband. This goes all the way back to creation. And Jesus, Jesus himself, if you ever have anyone say, well, I'm not sure about the structure of marriage, say, did you know Jesus spoke on it? Did you know he taught on it? And Jesus affirms this very simple yet very specifically designed aspect of marriage. This is Jesus's words. This is the words of Jesus himself, Mark chapter 10, 6 through 8. But from the beginning of creation, by the way, that actually removes evolution from the possibility as well. Amen. Jesus speaks on multiple things. He takes one bullet and it flies in all directions. From the beginning of creation, he does not say from the beginning of evolution... When two amoebas decided to come together, we still don't know where they came from. No, he says, from 
the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus speaking. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. There they are again. Married couples come from other married couples. Shall leave his father and mother, be joined his wife, and two shall become one flesh. And we understand that's not only the consummation of a marriage, but it also means things from a spiritual perspective as well. Now, Paul quotes this when we get to verse 31. Paul quotes this as well. Jesus said it. Paul quotes it also. Now, in addition to God's design of marriage being one male and one female as husband and wife, there's also a structural design of complementary roles, complementary roles uh, within a marriage. Uh, you probably, it says that you have a job and you work in some kind of career field, you probably have noticed that not everyone has the same job title as you. And you're like, well, you've probably from a long time, you've probably heard the cliche, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Try having a restaurant where there's every single person there is a chef. No waiters, no waitresses, everyone is a chef especially if they're like that mean chef on TV or something like that. you know. Um, but you know what I mean? Your job has different roles in your company or your business because they're complementary to each other. Nothing can get done if you watch football this afternoon. If you have 22 quarterbacks, you're not winning. They say if you, don't, if you, you, know, if you have a bunch, you don't have one, right? You know? So that it's very important that you have complementary roles. The fact that Jesus makes clear that not only we have these complementary roles, but he makes clear that the two, remember back what I just read from his uh, discussion of marriage in Mark chapter 10, Jesus makes clear that the two become one. That's very important. The two also become one. So they're complementary. You have complementary roles, and yet they become one. Interesting. Just like two puzzle pieces, one is not more important than the other puzzle piece. They're both needed to complete the picture, right? Both are needed. If you've ever followed a specific recipe, and, you know, I don't do much cooking in the house other than the grill is my domain. You know, I have the grill, eggs, grill, eggs, that, you know, stay right within that range. But I have had to follow a recipe before, and I've learned that a few times I did, if you don't follow the order, some things don't gel right or something like that. I don't know how it works, but you're like, there's an order to how this happens. And if you've ever baked and you didn't follow the order, you come to realize, wow, it actually does matter when I put the egg in versus when I put the oil or what all this kind of stuff. Those things make a difference in how it all blends. So when you read verse 22, wives submit to your own husband as the Lord, it has to do with order. It, uh, the, the, the word submit actually means uh, to organize or assemble under. Uh, it has to do with structure. It has to do with harmony. Do you like, I, I like classical music. Do you like that classical music is a harmonization of things, or would you like it just going all over the map? No. It actually has an order. It has a structure to it. It's not about importance or status or superiority or even worse applications down through history. And trust me, there have been worse applications for this verse than superiority, right? This verse has been greatly abused and taken completely and I'll say it again, completely out of context many times. Always remember the verse taken out of context is a pretext. The word pretext means excuse. To 
alter the meaning and to alter the usage. This verse wasn't meant in any way, shape, or form to indicate that husbands are many dictators and wives would be unpaid servants waiting on them hand and foot. That is not what the scripture is saying here at all. Another example of this is the way some have twisted in the past. People have twisted scriptures to fit their desires for racism and enslaving people. Total twisting of scripture. Taking it out of context and actually making it something that people's evil desires want, but it's not found in scripture. And Peter, by the way, warns of this in 2 Peter 3.16. He says that people twist the scriptures to their own destruction. So when we look at verse 22, along with verse 23 and 24, let me reread 23 and 24 as well. For the husband is head of the wife. Also, Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. But when we look at verse 22, all the way through verse 24 there, in the context of this chapter, and in this larger epistle of Ephesians chapter 5, written to the church there in Ephesus, and in the, then in the larger context of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, all of this conveys God's nature, his character, and his plan for marriage. You know, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, didn't he? Yes. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony, yet Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. What did he say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but thy will be done. Although it says that Jesus was equal to God and considered a robber to be equal to the Father. But there was a harmony between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the character of God. But these passages also portray God's heart for a healthy, for a growing, for a mutually beneficial marriage, but also a church marriage that's going to have to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Amen? All of that is here. Paul's not addressing only husband and wife. He's also addressing us as the church. And this will always be the case because eventually everyone will become widowed or some point. And so we still have to understand the larger nature of what God is doing. Now, five things um, to understand about the structure. If you're taking notes, I'll pop these up on the screen. Five things that, uh, that I've just observed in the text that I want to uh, share with you that are right here from the scriptures, from what we're looking at, five things to understand about the structure of marriage harmony. Because we don't want to just be married, we want to have a harmonious marriage. We want it to actually bear fruit and the roots go deeper and strengthen over time. So the first one is uh, what Jesus spoke about, that the two would become one flesh. Now, there is a unity as one. You've heard this in sports. Again, I use sports analogies all the time because I like sports. When a team plays as one, they're way more effective. True? When they play like one. But if they play like a bunch of individuals, not good, not good results. Well, what happens in a marriage, the more we become like one, we start to think like one. Those of you who have been married for a long time, you start completing each other's sentences, don't you? You're like, when did I lose my mind and gain your mind? That kind of thing, right? Uh, you start to do that over time. But that's not an accident. God actually wants it that way. Now, the more both our minds, me and my wife, are like Christ, then that's a force multiplier in the direction of God doing great things in our oneness. If we have one mind to go, we're both as worldly as the other one, right? Then that's not a good mindset, right? And you still will complete each other's sentences over time because we're spiritual beings either for good or for bad no matter what. 
we're created in, in the image of God, and so we're going to have some kind of spiritual fruit, either good fruit or bad fruit. So we'll either have a oneness, well, a couple things happen. You either have a oneness for the Lord, or you can have a oneness just that's just kind of, it's not spiritual, it's very temporal oneness. But eventually that will erode, and that's where people break apart anyway. Because then they start to say, well, what about my rights? So I want to buy this. I want to buy that. Well, I want to live this way. I want to live. Well, you always go see your mother, and I never do this. You know, all of a sudden, things implode. Unity is one. God wants us to think like-minded, but think like-minded from the standpoint of the Holy Spirit speaking in both of our lives. Number two, look at verse 21 above. This is, by the way, I'm very sad. Taking a verse out of context as a pretext, an excuse for changing the meaning. Um, any dudes over the course of history that like to point, uh, they're in an argument, they get out their Bible and they show their wife, see, it says right here, uh, verse 22, you know, that kind of, yeah. That's my Neanderthal voice, you know, so. Why submit to your home? You can point back to verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. One another, well, who does that apply to? Every person that breathes. Submitting to one another. Well, how did I miss that one, you know, Neanderthal dude, you know, that somehow missed verse 21, submitting to one another. And what I mean by that is the whole Christian life is about submitting. Everything in the Christian life is about submitting our plans, our desires, our will, our way, our wants. Say, Lord, your will. What is it you want? And we do that to each other. And when you know, people in the church do it to each other, you don't have friction. You don't have infighting. You don't have backstabbing. You don't have gossip. You don't have slander. When we submit to the will of the Lord, we submit. Everything is, you dive down and relationships flourish. The whole Christian life is about submitting. But this goes back to chapter 4 where Paul says, with lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing, one another in, bearing with one another in love. That is a dying to ourselves. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 that we're to consider others better than ourselves. Now, over time, um, you start treating your spouse as if they're better than you, your marriage is going to be better than ever. Number three, willingly makes a big difference. Willingly. How many of you like it when your kids willingly love you? <laughs> you will love us. No matter what, if I have to beat the tar out of you, you're going to love us. <laughs> right? It doesn't make any sense. Husbands that are trying to enforce love are playing a losing game. But wives that are trying to play in, in, enforcing love are playing a losing game too. It'll never, ever work. Willingly. Look at back at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And my, this one might blow right past you, but what Paul is saying here is very important. He does not give this command to the men. The emphasis of submission is for wives to willingly submit. He does not say, husbands, enforce submission. You'll not find it in Scripture. You will not find anywhere where you have to... He doesn't even say, husbands, if they don't understand, revert back to verse 22. <laughs> Refer back to 22. Tattoo it on your arm so you can make sure that they understand it. Never, you'll never find it. It says that the wife is the one who gets to willingly decide to submit. To willingly decide. 
But even though, and basically it's not, the word submission better understood is uh, willingly follow the leadership of the husband, the leadership. Now this is where people get tripped up. They say, well, he ain't leading. <laughs> we'll get to that in just a second. All right. Uh, we'll get to that. But it's not, for, it's not for husbands to demand submission or demand that you follow. It's not for me to walk in the house and say, listen up, family, you better submit. Because I just read Ephesians 5.22. All of you better submit, especially you, Sarah. Uh, you got to submit. The verse is right here. She can come back and say, you didn't read verse 21. I'm supposed to willingly submit, so you're not supposed to bark about it. I'm supposed to come to that place. And that's, that's true. Because when we lead then God is speaking to the spouse individually. Now, that brings us to number four. Notice who's doing the asking. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So, in any marriage, if both people are believers, husband saved, wife saved, they both say, we want to follow the Lord. Husband says, man, I, I want to be godly leader, I really feel that, uh, man, I really feel that we should go to the prayer meeting. I don't want to go to the prayer meeting. The voice is on tonight and this, that, and the other. You know, uh, uh, you know this, this, this is the finals, and this is really important stuff. And uh, I really think we should. That's the kind of thing that would come from the Lord. Now, she can still say, I, I don't want to. And you have to let God deal with that. But willingly, she could say, yeah, I think... Uh, I think that's, that's good because guess who's really asking that question? Not the husband. It says, as the Lord. It would be like Jesus walk in the room. You and the, you and the spouse are cr- sitting across the table from each other, and you're debating whether we should do this or that. And it's, not a, it's one of those things, it's not a right or wrong. Should the wall color be lavender or darker lavender, right? You know, you're down to this important decision, this critical, earth-shattering, eternal decision, which color of paint is going to be on the wall? Jesus comes in and says to the wife, you know, at the end of the day, just if he wants to go with that color, just go with it. Jesus, how? That's where you would then, your new argument would not be with the husband. Guess who you now have a debate with? That's what the verse is saying. Now, men aren't off the hook with this, ladies. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. We already said he ain't leading, right? We'll get back to that. Number five. Number five, this is real important. Real relationships build on trust. They build up when they're real. When you have a real relationship, not a fake marriage, you have a real marriage, you're coming together, you're getting more close over time. Real real relationships build deeper trust and deeper dependence. And this, by the way, goes to all kinds of relationships. You know, I spent 16 years in the business world, corporate America, uh, and this works in every other kind of relationship area, too. The longer people realize you're real and you care for them and you're genuine, the relationship gets stronger and they trust you more. And the more they trust you, they trust the decisions you make, they trust the opinions you give, and they actually start to depend upon you. I'll give you an example of this. Let's say this has happened in American history hundreds and thousands of times. Someone starts a company. They build it from the ground up. It's their company. But invariably, people can't do any job on their own, so what they do is they hire 
someone who way at the beginning of the company was called the number two. And guess what happens over the years? 30 years later, the founder of the company still relies on the number two. And I've seen it many times in meetings where I've seen the CEO or the executive vice president, their number two, they trust their decision more than they trust their own. They'll look across the table and say, all right, Jim, what do you think? I think it's a bad idea. All right, all right, Jim, I think it's a bad idea. We're not doing it. You ever seen this? In business, they say you better understand who the confidant is of the person you're dealing with because they often, and husbands, this means that after a while, see, my wife has a master's degree and I don't. There's things that she's better at than I am. And I could say, hey, what do you think? And she comes up with something. I'm like, I didn't even think of that. That's a better idea than mine. All right, scratch mine. Shh, off the list. Because trust and relationship and depth and say, hey, I, I really value what this person is saying comes the more a relationship gets closer together. Have you guys seen this? Yes. Again, I've seen it many, many times. It works in so many other relationships. Uh, you'll see it all across the uh, board because of the fact that um, God has created us to need each other. No man's an island, and certainly not uh, in a marriage. And within the marriage relationship, um, going back to kind of some other part of that structural role, God has placed upon the husbands the spiritual authority and responsibility. So, you know, many husbands are going to someday give an account to the Lord. And, uh, you know, you know, uh, Jesus, my wife was never submissive. And Jesus said, yeah, you know why? You were never leading spiritually. Oh, I thought it was because she hadn't read verse 22. No, no. No, you had read that to her a thousand times. You had yet to do all the verses around 22. Many husbands don't want to have the spiritual authority and spiritual responsibility. But when Adam and Eve fell, God came looking for who? Adam, where are you? Even though Eve was the first one, he did not. came looking for Adam. Like, who is the manager on the job? Who's the head coach here? You know, having the ultimate responsibility is not always fun. You're the first head to roll, too, by the way, dudes, you know? The higher you go on a chain, the more, the more responsibility you take. We hold five-star generals way more accountable than we hold the privates, don't we? And for good reason. Moses was held way more accountable for slapping a rock. Some low-level Israelites slapped a rock. God's all right, that was a bad day, but you're still going in the promised land. Moses, nope, no promised land for you. The higher you go up, the more the responsibility is. And so God's given this responsibility. It's a stewardship. It wasn't because Adam was more important but he was more accountable to lead the marriage and follow the commands of God. And this is true for me as a pastor. The Bible says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And there's, a, there's a spiritual principle all through the Bible. When you have spiritual leadership, uh, you're going to be given a more strict judgment when you meet the Lord. You may be more talented than me. A lot of you may be more talented than me in this room. That doesn't matter to God. He doesn't care if you're more talented. He it's, it's about responsibility. Some wives are more talented than their husband. That has nothing to do with the roles that they have. Talent is not the thing that God's looking at. It's roles and then the character within those roles. Um, in marriage, men and women, they're equal importance. They're equal importance, but of the structure, if you look at uh, even in the times when these scriptures were written, and you look at the life of Jesus, it's the Bible 
surprisingly to people that don't know the Bible. Did you enjoy Charlie Campbell last week? He gave a lot of insights that, that were kind of counter to what people always try and uh, tell you in some argument. Well, the Bible can't be trusted, so many different writers, all this other stuff. The Bible is an interesting book in so many ways, as you saw last week. Uh, it was the Bible that in a time when women had very few rights, it was the Bible that elevated and gave women value. Jesus broke barriers and went and talked to women. Even the disciples were like, what are you doing talking to that woman? We don't talk to them. Jesus broke all those kind of barriers, and the Bible breaks down a lot of barriers uh, for women um, in the Scriptures, breaks down misconceptions, breaks down what really is and isn't God's heart and design for marriage. Take a look at this verse in 1 Corinthians 7, 4. Paul writes this verse. This would have been quite a concept for people in that day, and Paul sets it out establishing that both sides of the marriage are equal, though the roles are different. 1 Corinthians 7, 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Guys might like to stop there, but you don't. The second part of the verse say, and likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Hmm. This could create some interesting understanding of a uh, I get to do whatever I want. If I want to hunt for a month, I can hunt for a month. You know, that kind of thing, you know. 50-50. Here's the thing. Spirit-filled and spirit-led husbands and wives will care for one another. And they don't command and control one another, even though they've been given spiritual authority in each other's lives. But the marriage, it really is a 50-50 ownership but with complementary roles based on humility. Did you hear that? The complementary roles are based on humility. How many of you like working for humble leaders in your life? Don't you want to work for a pompous person? They're the best, right? It's, not, it's so much fun to work for a pompous person. It's so much fun to build a relationship with a pompous, arrogant person, right? <coughs> of course it's not. We have Jesus as our leader, right? He's the model. And we can't look at this text, though, and miss the church-wide application here as well. Again, this is not just for marriage, although that's kind of the bullseye we're hitting. We want to make sure we understand the, uh, the rest of it as well. Christ leads his church. If you look at the, the rest of um, uh, those verses there, it says Christ is the head of church. He is the Savior of the body. The church is subject to Christ. We can't miss this. Christ leads the body of Christ, not just Calvary Chapel Richmond, but all Calvary chapels and anyone that's truly a, a born-again, believing church, regardless of the denomination, Christ should lead the church. His word should lead the church. We're never going to get away from using the word here. Not some new book or some <laughs> philosophy that's become popular, especially when they start to conflict with Scripture. We're married to him. To resist him would do damage to the relationship. To follow anything but his teaching and anything but the scriptures would be spiritual adultery. <clears throat> so Jesus is making clear, I'm the head of the church. My teachings are what we focus on, not mine, but Christ's teachings. All right, the last two, and or the next two and last two things we'll look at this morning, and they are related to husbands. The wives are like, yay, so the husband's leading to love. Leading to a loving marriage, uh, the surrender. All right, let's take a look at these last two verses, and we'll start to wrap it up. Um, 
with our table setting today. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. There's a lot in that verse. Love gave. It's been well said that you cannot be a good leader unless you first learn how to follow. This is true in the military chain of command, but even more so in the Christian life and in a godly and healthy marriage. You have to learn to follow men for us to fulfill 25. I'm a husband. If you're a man you're married, this verse applies to you. Husbands, it's directed to us. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I cannot fulfill verse 25, nor can any other man here, unless we've learned to follow Jesus. Amen. Unless we've learned to follow the Lord. Husbands must follow Christ and be disciples of Christ. If they're to minister to, if they're to love if they're to provide leadership for their wife and for their family. I don't, the longer I'm saved and the older I get, I've come to realize I have no help unless God helps me. I, I'm, I was so much smarter when I was 18 than I am at 48. I don't understand it. Uh, at 18, I knew so many things. 28, I was pretty darn smart. By the time I got to 48, I knew nothing. And that's when Jesus said, now I've got you right where I want you. And all of a sudden, things go better when you start to realize how little you know. If you need anything, just ask a teen here. They got it. They got, they got your answer. I'm kidding. I, I mess around with my own teens a lot with this stuff. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Jesus said, anything you see me doing, you're going to have to do. Now, that's in his lifestyle. That doesn't mean you're going to get nailed to a Roman cross, although we are to take up our life and crucify the flesh, metaphorically, spiritually speaking. But he's like, the things that you saw me focus on, those are the things I want you focused on. Jesus didn't live a me-centered life. He lived an others-centered life. You'll live a wife-centered, other-centered, your children-centered, and the world around you-centered, but you'll put yourself in last. Great leaders always put themselves last. Ultimately, if we look at the life of Jesus... Ultimately, he sacrificed his very life for the church. He gave it, his body and blood. But when we look at the uh, pattern of his life, he demonstrated his love and sacrificial service. Don't you think Jesus served a lot of people? Sacrificial service. He took time with people. We live in a day and age that no one has time. I count how many times people will tell you, I just don't have the time. You know, just get, a, get yourself like an electric zapper, and every time you say it, zap yourself with it. You know, Jesus found time for people. He found time for people. He didn't use the patent excuse, well, i got a whole world to save. I don't have time for you. He had time. He took time for people. He, by the way, in taking time means altering our calendars. You may have to alter your calendar for your wife and kids. Matter of fact, if you've never altered your calendar, then that should be a problem. It's a red flag. We've got to alter our calendar for our wives and our children, but also for other people in, in, in life and serving people that don't know the Lord. And Jesus also listened. We have to not only hear, but we have to listen. Concentrate on not what you're about to say, but on listening. It's all important for all of us. He ministered to people and he met their needs. And these are 
just a few of the things Jesus said. Jesus set a really high bar. Wouldn't you say, dads, uh, husbands, he set a really high bar. But the only way we can even attempt to model the bar he set, here's where it is, John chapter 15. I've been meditating on a lot lately. We have to abide in him. Abiding in Christ is the way we model. There's not, you say, I'm, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. No, abide in him, and the flow is Holy Spirit driven. Abide in him will purify our love, and it will replace our excuses with examples that come directly from Jesus. It will replace our excuses with examples from the Lord, how we can serve our spouse better, how we can serve the needs of our kids. And by the way, we get good at that. God expands the value because our marriage doesn't become just about us. We actually touch other people's lives. Me and my wife are married now 23 years. Yeah, 23. Yeah, yeah. 23 years. And so uh, we now have had a chance to minister to a lot of other people. So it's not just about our own marriage. We want other people's marriages to grow and to mature. And by the way, if, um, if your wife really is uh, a believer and you're both saved and you st- your wife is f- trying to follow the Lord and she sees you really start to follow Jesus, she'll think you're the greatest thing on planet Earth. You say, well, she already thinks that. Well, I don't know about that. But anyway, uh, she really will start to think it. It won't just be something she says. She'll actually deep down believe it. No, no, he's the greatest thing outside the Lord on planet Earth because you can't fake genuine and humility and real love is very attractive, dudes. It really is. It's very attractive when they see the real thing. And we got to wrap up with this last point here. The surrender. We looked at um, the structure, the surrender, and the last is the sanctification. Just uh, one verse, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now, you, you'll note in your Bibles that the he is capitalized. So Paul is speaking of Jesus here. Um, so Jesus is the one. This is what uh, Christ specifically does for us. He's doing it here this morning. Did you know that while, while we read his word, provided that I have presented it scripturally, not perfectly, I might mess up a word or something, but I've presented it biblically, accurately, and scripturally, do you know he's actually sanctifying us together right now? that the word sanctifies us, that you might have came in here with kind of a bad attitude on something and the word has sanctified you and you say, well, I, that, why, did, why did Wednesday pop into my mind on Sunday morning? Well, God just says, don't do, don't do that this week. Clean that area up, walk straight, you know, circumspect. We've talked about what that means. Same, same uh, epistle here. But this is what Christ does with us. He sanctifies us by his Holy Spirit through the purity of the word. That's why I have to read the Bible all the time. I read the Bible daily. I hope you do too. I don't read the same amount every day, but I read a portion of the Bible every day to say, Lord, I need to have your words go into my mind. Blessed is the man who walks not counsel the godly, but he meditates on the Lord, right? We need the scripture to purify us. This is why a personal walk in life with the Word is essential to us all. We all have to have a personal cleansing from Jesus daily, daily, because we mess up daily, right? We need a personal cleansing. We need the Word to come in and renew our minds. Romans uh, tells us this. But we're all called as husbands and fathers to, even though Jesus is the model here, Jesus is the model of verse 26, men... In the context that, starting verse 25, he's speaking to husbands, men, we're to model 
this in, in our families and in our, uh, the marriage relationship because Jesus is the high priest of our confession, but guess who the high priest of the home is called to be? The men, the high priest of the home. We're called to be the high priest in the home. We're called to sanctify our marriages as faithful high priest in the home. And men, simple question, are you ministering the word of God in your family? Are you ministering the word of God in your family? And that's not always done with a devotion. It's done by normal conversation. It's done by asking your kids, hey, how's your Bible study going? What? What Bible study? You know, that kind of, you, you start to talk, you start to speak into lives. You start to say to your wife, hey, what's the Lord showing you in your, in your time in the Word? And she's like, did you just ask me what the Lord, who am I talking to? I thought you would only ask me about why didn't we clean the garage yet or do this or that, that kind of thing, right? Are you ministering the Word? In his book, Ten Best, The Ten Best Decisions a Leader Can Make, Bill Farrell says in chapter 3, which is titled, Decide to Be Ready, it says this, on a personal level, you gain insight to God's plan for your life as you exercise your gifts. As you serve others, you discover that much of what you do for others also applies to you. This is so true. Those who teach the Word to their kids, to their wife, those who teach it, every time I teach, I learn way more by teaching. By the way, everything I teach, I have to preach it to myself. And when you teach things in your home and you teach and minister the word, it's not like you say, oh, I'm going to be a hypocrite. I'm going to say all this stuff. No, the Lord actually stirs it up in you. And you say, wow, I need to follow this more. I need to walk in this more. Are you sharing? Are you sharing the Word of God? If you do, you'll grow exponentially. Your marriage will grow exponentially. Our church will grow exponentially as we minister the Word of God because we're all called to be kings and priests to the Lord in that relationship. We're going to close there, but again, I want to just remind you that you know, today it was a table setting. We've got a couple more weeks of marriage. We'll look at some more of the practical stuff and how, how you can really invest uh, in a marriage, but we'll also look at marriage as Christ in the church. I want to be very mindful of those of you that are not currently married and the fact that all of us have something to gain from this text. We'll get into more of that in the next couple weeks. But simple question, are you thankful for marriage? You know, even if you're not married, you should be thankful that God designed it because you wouldn't be here without God's design. That God's design really is perfect. If we would get back to the perfection of his design, are you thankful you're married to Jesus? Are you thankful you're married to the Lord? And are you willing, are you willing to have the healthy marriage God desires for you? Notice the word I used. Not do you want it. Are you willing did you know that God says, I will give you a healthy marriage? The question is, do, are you willing? And if we say, yes, Lord, I'm willing, then he say, all right, now we got something to work with. Amen?